Well, for those of you who are new to Brookstone Church, let me take just a minute at the beginning of my time with you today to bring you up to speed on the things that we have been learning together uh, as a church family. A few weeks ago, we began a a teaching series that's a seven-week-long series that we're calling Seven Strong, um, Bearing Up or, or Remaining Strong or Enduring While We Are Living Under High Tension. Now, what we're seeking to understand in this series is how that when the pressure of life really begins to burden down upon us, that we don't collapse, that we're able to overcome and to bear up in it. And to learn those lessons, we're studying through three books in the Old Testament. They're the books of Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah. And these are three what are known as post-exilic books. And they're called post-exilic books because they record events that occurred after the Israeli or the Jewish captivity and exile in Babylon. If you read Old Testament history, uh, one of the watershed moments, really the watershed moment in the history of Israel in the Old Testament is when they went into captivity for 70 years in Babylon. And so some things in the Old Testament happened before that, some things happened post that or post-exilic, and Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are post-exilic. We're learning seven qualities or character traits which we want to have present in our lives so that we will be able to bear up in these high-tension moments of life. But now let me be clear, make sure that all of you understand that this message or this series is not seven steps to a better you. That's not the point. We're not just trying to, to, to learn seven steps to have a greater or a stronger character. What we are doing, rather, is acknowledging that in these three books there are people whose lives reflected these qualities and that every one of these qualities are also present in the life of Jesus and that we are not trying to just be better people, we are trying to become more fully devoted disciples of Jesus Christ. We want to be more like these people and to be more like Jesus. And that we can do that, we can possess these quality traits by the power of the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit of God can produce these things within us. So that's, that's our goal and these are the things that we've been working on over the last couple of weeks. One other thing that we're doing, by the way, is that everything that we're learning on Sunday mornings... We're then learning to apply as we go to life groups. So we have over 50 life groups that meet throughout um, Buncombe County and Madison County and Yancey County, really throughout the area, throughout the region. Over 50 groups that meet throughout the week and they are studying these things that we learn on Sunday mornings, talking about them in group and learning to apply them to our lives. And you're invited to join one of those small groups. We would love to have you uh, be able to grow in your faith in partnership with a few other people. And you can get more information about that at the Information Center as well. So that's kind of where we've been. Now, over the last couple of Sundays, we've talked about the first two of these seven character traits. Let me remind you of what they were. We began by talking about the endurance of Zerubbabel. One of the things that we need to have present in our lives to, to uh, bear up in moments of high tension is endurance, faithfulness, persistence, stick to This is the persistence and the endurance that we saw in Zerubbabel. 
Zerubbabel was this governor of Judea who was, who was charged with rebuilding the temple of God. It took him over 20 years, but he endured to the end. And he was faithful. Secondly, last Sunday we learned about the gracious spirit of Esther. And we talked about Esther who was the queen of Persia. The queen to King Ahasuerus, the queen of this great Persian empire. But she didn't begin as the queen. She began as an orphan. And we learned how that she was swept into the palace. So we've talked about endurance. We've talked about a gracious spirit. Two things that we need in order to endure or to bear up in moments of high tension. Today we're going to the third one. Jot it down if you will. We're going to talk about integrity. We're going to talk about the integrity of Mordecai. The integrity of of Mordecai. I want everybody to say that word out loud with me so I know that you're listening to me. What is the word we're learning about today? It is, that's it. It is integrity. You know what integrity is, don't you? You know the definition of integrity. The word integrity means it is the quality or the state of being complete or of being undivided. In a moral sense, it means moral uprightness. In fact, there are a number of places in your Bible where modern translations of Scripture use the word integrity, um, but the King James translation uses the words moral uprightness. It means the same thing. The, The idea of integrity is that I live with a morality that matches what I say I believe on the inside. It is to be consistent in my walk with my talk. People who live with integrity are complete. They're whole. They're undivided. They're not duplicitous. So what they say they believe is what they really believe. And what they say they believe is how they actually live. Their their walk matches their talk. Moral uprightness. Now, the idea of integrity, though, is not only a moral concept, it's also a physical concept. And when you think about integrity in the physical world, it really does help us understand how important integrity is in the moral world. Uh, Physicists and engineers will often apply their knowledge and their training to make certain that any structure, any building, any any structure is built with integrity. If there is not integrity in building materials, in building structure, then the building will collapse under its own weight. Now, I don't want to make you nervous right now, but right above your head, uh, above the ceiling, in the structure of this building, there are massive steel beams. I was here when they built this thing. I remember seeing those beams go up. There are massive steel beams, and these beams were, uh, def- uh, were engine- engineered for this structure. Not only for the size and the width and the length and the load of this structure, but also for this region, for the wind loads that might be expected and the earthquake possibilities that might happen. It was engineered specifically for all of the conditions right here on this location. And you and I care deeply that the steel above us has integrity. Because if that steel were to lack integrity, 
it would give way and collapse and everything above your head would come crashing down upon your head. Integrity matters. If you understand, say amen. And in the same way, the life that lacks integrity will eventually collapse. And the life that lacks integrity will most likely fall when the pressure is on. When the burdens are heavy and the tension is high, that's when the life without integrity is going to fail. So we all need to live with integrity. Now Mordecai in our text had integrity. And all of us want to have integrity. We want to live with integrity. And the good news is, is that God by his spirit can impart to us a life of integrity and empower us to live a life of integrity. So let's talk about it. Uh, Esther chapter number two is where you have your Bibles open. Look with me in verse number five, six, and seven where we're gonna learn some information about Mordecai. Verse number five of chapter two says, now in Susa, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai. Stop right there, a lot of information in that first sentence. What do we know about Mordecai? We know that he was a Jewish person but we know that he did not live in Jerusalem or in Israel. We know that he lived in Susa or Shushan in the capital of the Persian Empire. He lived in that, in that uh, capital city of Persia. He was, verse uh, 5 says, the son of Jair, the son of um, Shammai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Now, it's interesting to note, and if you know your Old Testament very much, you might recognize the name Kish. He was a descendant of Kish. Well, who was Kish? Uh, Kish was the father of Saul, and Saul was the very first king of Israel. So Mordecai was a great, 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 great grandson of the first king of Israel. He has royal blood pumping through his veins. You also learn about him in verses 5, 6, and 7 that he is the older cousin of Queen Esther. We talked about this last week. In fact, Esther was an orphan and Mordecai uh, took her to be his own daughter when her parents died and he raised her um, uh, from a young age. This is Mordecai. Now go over to chapter 2 and verse number 21. You're going to see something else that's really important to know about him. Verse number 21 says, In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Stop right there. It's a really important phrase. Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Whenever you're reading in the Bible where someone sat, that is they had a position in the king's gate, what it's telling you is that he had a place of authority in the gate of King Ahasuerus in that Persian empire. It means to say that he was a person of authority. Maybe he was a magistrate, maybe a judge. He might have been a recorder, a court recorder. We don't know. But we know that he held a place of authority in the, the government of King Ahasuerus. The reason that it, is, uh, that it says that he sat in the king's gate is because in the ancient world, all the things that needed to happen that were important, that were legal, that required witnesses, 
all of those things always happened at the gate of the city. The gate of the city was the place where the people came where the vendors were, where the merchants sold their goods, where the authorities met, where the elders of the city came together. And if you wanted to do anything important in an ancient city, you did it at the gate. That's where those things happened. Now, when you think about an ancient gate to a city, I don't want you to think about your garden, okay? I don't want you to think about your picket fence and the gate which swings on those creaky uh, hinges, okay? I want you to think larger, more, more grand than that. I don't even want you to think about a fort in your Western movies where there were large gates made of timbers. I want you to think larger than that. And the only uh, thing that I thought what would illustrate this the best would be to show you a gate which exists from the ancient world and it still remains today. And here it is. This is a photograph of the gate the Damascus Gate in Jerusalem, Israel. This is the gate. I want them to leave that picture up for just a minute so you can really think with me about it. This is the gate that goes into, one of the gates that goes into the ancient or the old city of Jerusalem. Now the gate is not the door. The door is the door. The gate is the entire complex, that entire ornate complex that you see in front of you. And this gate like every gate in the ancient world, was not just a swinging door and a straight entrance into the city. If you were to go to Jerusalem and walk in that gate, I've done it many times, when you go through that doorway in the gate, you enter in, and as soon as you go through the door, you have to turn left. There's a wall in front of you. And you have to take probably 15, 20 steps this way, and then there's a wall here, and you have to turn this way. You make a left and then a right inside that gate complex. And once you make a left and a right, now you're finally in the city. They built the gates that way as protective measures. Because if you're living in an ancient city and there's a marauding army coming and they're attacking the gates of your city, as soon as the gate is open, you don't want them just to flood straight into your city. You want to slow them down. So you want the horses and the chariots to come through the gate and have to stop and then turn and then go this way and then have to stop and turn. And while they're turning their chariots and their horses, guess what you get to be doing? You're up on top of the gate and you're shooting bows and arrows and pouring boiling oil down on them. It's a defensive measure of a city. But it's also the place in that great complex where everyone would come together to transact any important business. If you wanted a transaction to take place which required witnesses, you went to the gate because that's where you would find the people. Interestingly, if you know the book of Ruth, it occurred in the book of Ruth where Boaz needed to transact this uh, uh, leveret marriage right with, with Ruth and he needed some witnesses to the transaction. So where did he go? If you read the book of Ruth, he went to the gate of the city. Anytime you needed to bring a civil matter to, to trial, to court, where did you go? You went to the gate of the city. If you needed to get wisdom from the elders of the city, you went to the gate of the city. Everything happened at the gate. Are you all with me about the gate? If you understand the gate, say amen. All right, so the gate is important. Mordecai served in the royal court of King Ahasuerus and his office was at the gate. So let's read it. Chapter 2, verse 21. 
In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, uh, of those which kept the door, they were angry and they sought to lay hold on King Ahasuerus. It's a plot to assassinate the king. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it to Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found to be true. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Now, after these things, did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. And all the king's servants that were in the king's gate bowed and reverenced Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him, Mordecai, though, bowed not, nor did him reverence. Then the king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's commandment? Why are you not bowing to Mordecai? Or, I'm sorry, bowing to Haman. And it came to pass when they spoke daily unto him about this, and he refused to hearken unto them, that they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's matters would stand. For he had told them, that is, Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow nor pay him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought it scorn, or he hated the idea, or despised the idea of laying hands on Mordecai alone. For they had shown him the people of Mordecai, wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even all the people of Mordecai. Now we're thinking about integrity. And we're thinking about how that integrity needs to inform decisions that we make. In fact, if you're a note taker, I want you to write that down. Let's begin by talking about decisions that demand integrity. Decisions that demand integrity. Did you know that you make thousands of decisions every day of your life? And you don't realize that you make that many because most of us in making these multiplied thousands of decisions, they're so routine that we don't even really consider them as being decisions. Someone has actually calculated it and said, on average, uh, human beings, or Americans at least, make 35,000 decisions a day. Can you imagine? 35,000 decisions every day. Now the truth is, most of those decisions are so insignificant, they're so unimportant, we don't even remember them. Like, when you went to your sock drawer this morning, you made a decision. You probably didn't give it any thought. You just you know, grabbed a pair of socks that sort of matched what you were wearing, and you're good to go, right? So we make those kinds of decisions every day. You go to breakfast with somebody, you say, I'll have two eggs with some toast, and, and, the, and then you have to make a decision. Like you just decided what you want. You tell them what you want, and then they want you to make another decision. Would you like white, wheat, or rye? You have to make a decision. Now, the truth is, it's not that important of a decision, but you have to decide. You have to tell them. Actually, it probably is important because someone once told me, the whiter the bread, the sooner you're dead. Always remember that, all right? <laughs> Go with wheat. It's healthier. But my point is, it's just a decision that you have to make. We make those kind of decisions every day. 
uh, these shoes or those shoes, that tie or the other tie, paper or plastic. I mean, all these decisions we make. Uh, Would you like bacon on that? It's actually no decision to be made, amen? That's always, (laughs) that's always, yes, add bacon to anything all the time. But then we make some really important decisions as well. How about this one? Would you marry me? It's a pretty important decision, don't you think? I mean, in that moment, ladies, if if that moment has happened or ever happens for you, just know it's a pretty big moment. You need to make a decision. You need to make a wise decision. We make decisions like, um, uh, should I take that new job? Should I change careers? Should I move to another city? How about this? Will I commit that crime? What about this? Will I be faithful to my spouse? All of these are decisions that we're encountering that must be made, and they must be made from a place of biblically informed integrity. These decisions demand integrity. Mordecai faced two decisions in our text that demanded him to wrestle with the issues around integrity. The first one was this, write it down. He had to decide, do I warn the king or do I look the other way? This is back in chapter 2, verses 21, 22, 23, when Bigthan and Teresh are mad at the king for some reason, and they're going to they're gonna have him assassinated. They're going to lay hands on him and kill him. And, and, and Mordecai gets word of this. He's got a decision to make. Do I get involved? Do I speak up? Do I put my neck out? Am, am I going to risk getting involved in all of this? What if it's just my word against theirs? Then what happens? Maybe he was tempted to think, you know what, King Ahasuerus, he's a big boy. He's got all kinds of security guards. He can take care of himself. It's none of my business. I'm just not going to get involved in that. I don't want to be a snitch. I don't want the people in the gate to know that I'm the one that, that snitched on Bigthan and Teresh. Maybe he thought those, way, those things. Maybe then he, he had to go to the other side of the equation and start thinking, well, but now wait a minute. I serve in the king's court. I, I have a responsibility. I, I, I don't want the king to be harmed or certainly to be killed. It's, I'm, I need to be loyal to the king. Remember, he is Esther's um, uh, surrogate father. He raised Esther. Now Esther is married to the queen or the king. We're not just talking about the king. We're talking about the husband of his daughter. Maybe he thought for Esther's sake, I need to speak up. Maybe he thought, you know what, here's a real opportunity. If I speak up, there's bound to be a reward, right? I mean, if you save the life of the king of the world, then surely there's going to be a reward that you'll receive. Well, the Bible says that he had to make this decision, and in fact, he did make the decision. He made the right decision in his integrity. He let Esther know about the plot. Esther passed the word on to the king. The king's uh, um, officials made an inquisition, found it to be true, and uh, Bigthan and Teresh, Teresh were executed. In fact, look at chapter 2 and verse number 23. It says, when inquisition was made of the matter, they found it to be true. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree, and it was, underline this, it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. It was recorded in the official record of the kingdom. 
that Mordecai had saved the king's life. And do you know what happened with Mordecai? Do you know the reward that he got for saving the king's life? Nothing. No reward. Not even a mention on the evening news. He didn't get a bunch of money. He got no promotion. He got nothing. In fact, not only did he save the king's life and he got nothing, Haman got promoted instead. Can I get a witness? Sometimes life is not fair. Amen? It's not. It's just not fair. Haman was promoted instead. That was his first decision he had to make. The second decision that he had to make in this passage is the decision, do I honor God? Do I honor God? Or do I bow? Bow down to Haman. Do I honor God or do I bow down to Haman? Now, now the text tells us in chapter 3, the first few verses, that Haman is promoted to be above all of his peers. Um, in fact, the, the, the text would imply that he actually is promoted to be vice regent in all of Persia. And verse number 2 tells us that the king makes a decree that everyone must bow to Haman when he comes by. Okay? Now, the word bow, let me tell you what it means. It doesn't mean that when he comes by, you're to step back and stand at attention. You're to salute. The word bow means bend the knee. The king said, Haman is promoted. Every time Haman passes in front of you, you are to bend your knees and bow your head. That was the command. Now, Mordecai had a decision to make. Am I going to honor my God or am I going to be forced to bow to this wicked Haman. Well, he refused to do it. He absolutely would not bow. Now, some people have said, well, maybe he didn't bow because um, he was angry. He was angry that he didn't get promoted. Maybe he was just being proud and obstinate. I don't think so. In fact, I think the text implies pretty clearly that he is bowing because he, or is not bowing, because he is a Jew. And his devotion is to God. And he's not going to bow to any other than to God himself. He was going to remain faithful. And so he wouldn't allow his heart to be distracted, to be divided from its devotion to God. And he would remain faithful, a worshiper of God alone. And that he would not kneel to any man. By the way, he made this decision in the face of intense Peer pressure. Look at verses, I mean, chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what these verses say. The king's servants, which were in the king's gate, said unto Mordecai, What's your problem, man? Well, it's a modern translation says it that way. <laughs> What's up, dude? Why will you not bow to, to Haman? The king has said to bow. And he's told them, I'm a Jew. I, I'm, I'm, I, I bow to God. I'm not going to bow to any man. And you can imagine they're saying, Shut up and just bow. Why are you acting so weird? Why don't you just get on your knees like the rest of us? Quit creating a problem for us. It's intense peer pressure. And yet he refused to bow. Now, I don't know this for sure, but I tend to think that maybe, maybe, maybe Mordecai got his inspiration from Daniel. You know, when Mordecai lived, he's only a generation or two after Daniel, the prophet Daniel in the book, in the book of Daniel. 
And if you read the book of Daniel, Daniel faced peer pressure as well, and yet he stood his ground. Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 tells us that Daniel had been taken down to Babylon and he was offered this wonderful buffet dinner every single night of wonderful meat that the king ate. And he was offered that meal to eat every night and he wouldn't eat it. It was wonderful and sumptuous. The only problem was it wasn't kosher. And it was forbidden for a Jewish boy, a Jewish man to eat that. And so while there were plenty of people around him eating it, plenty of his Jewish friends that were taken to Babylon with him, they were indulging. Daniel 1.8 says, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Now, I don't know this for sure, but maybe. I'm certain Mordecai would have been familiar with the story of Daniel. And I'm, I'm convinced that maybe he thought, you know what, if Daniel can resist and stand firm, I'm going to resist and stand firm. And also in the book of Daniel, read about three other of his countrymen, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were commanded to bow down and worship an idol that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they would not bow either. So I don't know for sure what his motivation was or what his inspiration was, but in any case, he did not bow. And by the way, we ought to thank God for that. He had integrity. And because of his integrity, he would not bow. And don't you know it, that when you make the right decision based on your integrity, it always works out beautifully for you immediately. Is that true? That is not true. In fact, sometimes we have to deal with this reality. It is that when doing right seems to go wrong. And it really does happen. I mean, I, I, I wish I could say it weren't true but it is true that sometimes when you do the right thing based on your integrity, it doesn't produce the most pleasant results in the short term. Sometimes it makes life more difficult. Sometimes when you make the integrity move, it puts you on a path of difficulty and even persecution. I just mentioned the three Hebrew children from the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow, and were they honored? No, not immediately. Immediately they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace, and God had to deliver them from there. And so the same thing happens to Mordecai. Look at chapter number 3, verse number 5. Because Mordecai refuses to bow, Haman is full of wrath, and his wrath is so strong, he's so furious that verse 6 says he doesn't, even, he doesn't even want to just punish Mordecai. He's going to punish every Jewish person in the kingdom. Listen carefully. Last week we learned that the Persian Empire stretched from Ethiopia in Africa to India in the east. 127 villages, or not villages, provinces, regions. 127 of them. And Mordecai is so filled with hatred because, or uh, Haman is so filled with hatred because of Mordecai's refusal to bow, he says, We're going to annihilate every one of the Jews in the kingdom. In fact, he begins to carry this plan out. Look at chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people, a certain group of people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom. They're their laws are diverse from all the people. They're, they're weird. They believe funny things. They behave in odd ways. I mean, and, and their odd behavior is instructed by some belief they have 
in some writings that tell them about their God. If y'all are listening, would you shout amen? You need to hear me. That in the world that you and I live in, and as time passes, the more secular our world becomes, the more they will look sideways at you when you say, I believe this book and order my life by it. You'll be one of those weird people who believes those strange things. And you, like Mordecai, might be ostracized, maybe even persecuted. He says, verse number 8, there are all these people, they're weird. They believe these strange things. They don't obey your laws. And therefore, verse 8 says, uh, it's not to the king's profit to suffer them, to allow them to live. We should just kill them all. Verse 9, if it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed. Do you see how this is presented? I mean, it's, it's just so, so cut and dry. It's just so simple. Uh, there's these people, they're weird. Let's kill them all. Let, it be, let a decree be made. Uh, decree be made, that they will all be destroyed. And he's so committed to this, verse 9 says, that he says, I will pay 10,000 talents of silver. It's the equivalent of millions and millions of dollars today. I will pay to have them all killed. Skip to verse 13. So the king agrees, and letters were sent by posts into all the king's provinces to destroy and to kill and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children, men and women, in one day upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to take a spoil of them for a prey. It's absolutely unthinkable. So the king agrees. They make this plan. They roll the dice. They, they cast lots. It's called pur, P-U-R, We'll talk about it, that word next week, so stay tuned for that. But, but they, they cast lots to, to, to let the fates determine what day all the Jews are going to be killed. And as it turns out, it's a, it's a year down the road. And so the Jews now have one year notice. And imagine this. Uh, couriers are sent out. Heralds are sent out from the kings. They go throughout all of the 127 provinces of Persia. Hear ye, hear ye. And they hammer up on the post in the city square. On this day in one year, every Jewish man, woman, boy, and girl are to die. And they're not sending in the army to kill them. The, the command is kill your Jewish neighbors and take their stuff and do it on this day in one year. I mean, this is all because one man refused to bow to Haman. And you have to ask, don't you? You have to, what, what in the world would motivate such hatred in Haman's heart for Mordecai and the Jewish people? Well, look at chapter 3, verse 1. You'll get some insight as to why he hated them so much. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. And these things... You know, after these things, did Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha? Here it is, the Agagite. The Agag, Agagite. He promoted him. What does that mean, the Agagite? It means that he was a descendant of Agag. Everybody say, like you're gagging, say Agag. Agag. You know who Agag was? Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were a nation of people who resisted the Israelites from the time of Moses bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. And King Saul, are you listening? Mordecai's great-great-great-great-grandfather, King Saul, wiped out the Amalekite people in, a, in battle. And Samuel the prophet had their last king killed. 
And so burning in the heart of Haman, nurtured from the earliest days of his childhood, was a deep-rooted, long-standing, and well-nurtured hatred for Jewish people. And in Mordecai, he found his excuse to have them all wiped out. That's exactly what is happening here. Now let me ask you, has a similar thing ever happened to you? Now I don't mean, obviously, a similar thing like somebody's trying to kill you. Probably that's never, you probably never had your life put under threat, or at least I hope not. Here's what I'm asking. Have you ever made a decision based on your integrity? Have you ever made the integrity move? You did what was right because it was right and it backfired on you. Has it ever happened? You did what was right and somebody never spoke to you again. You did the right thing and they held it against you forever. You did the right thing and you lost your job. When we do what is right, because it is right, because we are making the integrity move, while it may backfire on us in this life, take heart because God is watching. And if you believe it, shout amen. God is watching and he will reward your integrity. In fact, would you write that down? Just in closing, we should understand the reward of integrity. Remember, Mordecai had two decisions to make. One of those decisions was, am I going to rescue the king, intervene in this plot to have him assassinated? Chapter 2, verse number 23, remember, he intervened. An inquisition was made. He saved the king's life. And in verse number 23 of chapter 2, it was recorded in the king's chronicles. And he got nothing for it, right? He got nothing for it. Well, Fast forward to Haman's plan to kill all the Jews. And in the days just following the hatching of this plan, go to chapter 6 and look what happens. Chapter 6 and verse number 1, on one particular night, the king could not sleep. Now, God can give us insomnia for a very good reason. And he gave the king insomnia. On one night, the king could not sleep, so he commanded Uh, to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles, which, by the way, was probably a good sleep aid. (laughs) If you wanted to go to sleep and you couldn't go to sleep, probably get somebody to read to you the the, uh, Chronicles from Congress, and it would put you to sleep. So they bring the Chronicles of the the King's Chronicles, and they begin to read them to the king. And where do you think they read? Look at chapter 6, verse 2. And it was found written. It just so happened that this is the book of the Chronicles that they're reading to him. It was found written that Mordecai had told, big, uh, had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's chamberlains, chamberlains, the keepers at the door, who sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Suddenly, the king is being reminded on this night that he can't sleep of the thing that Mordecai had done to save his life. And suddenly he decides that Mordecai needs to be honored for that great act. Now, here's what I want you to know, and I don't want you to miss this at all. It is that when we do the right thing because it's right, sometimes it makes life more difficult for us, but God is always working on our behalf, and he is always working to bring about his ultimate plan. In fact, look at what Proverbs 16.33 says. 
It says the lot is cast into the lap. It means the dice are rolled. But it's every decision is from the Lord. I love that verse. It says when you roll the dice, when when the dice are rolled, it's a game of chance. But there's no chance in the realm of a sovereign God. He determines how the dice will fall. And so he is the one orchestrating these events. It's true over and over in the Bible. You see it in Joseph's life. How that God directed the events of his life to position him to rescue Israel or the Jewish people. And when we make decisions in our integrity, God watches and he honors that. Listen to Psalm 25 and verse 21. Let integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Here's what that means. It means I'm going to do what's right because it's right. And then I'm going to wait on God for the consequences. I'm going to do what's right in my integrity, no matter what happens, and I'm going to wait on God to rescue me in the midst of that decision, whatever it brings. I will do what's right. Now, God, come. I'm waiting for you. Proverbs 28 and verse 18, whoever walks in integrity will be delivered, but he who is crooked in his ways will suddenly fall. And that is proven to be true in this passage. Now, I'm finished, but I just have to read to you A few more verses in Esther chapter 6. Verse number 3, the king said, after hearing this chronicle read in the middle of the night about Mordecai saving his life, he says in verse 3, what honor and dignity hath been done to Mordecai for this? And they, they then said the king's servants that ministered to him, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who's in the court? Now Haman had come into the outward court of the king's house to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Haman has just arrived, perfect timing, right after the chronicles are read. The king is reminded of Mordecai's rescue. Now Haman arrives. He's going to ask the king permission to have Mordecai executed. They they say, uh, Haman, come in. The king wants to see you. Verse 6. Haman came in. And the king said unto Haman... What shall be done unto the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman thought in his heart, well, who would the king want to honor more than me? If y'all track it with me, say amen. <clears throat> so he thinks about it a minute. He says, uh, verse number seven, Haman answered the king. Well, <clears throat> for the man that the king would delight to honor, here's what I would suggest. Uh, let the royal apparel, the royal robe, which the king wears, um, let that be brought to him. Let the horse that the king rides upon and the royal crown which the king wears, let that be set upon his head. Let this apparel and the horse be delivered into the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that they may array the man in all of these things whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him through the city and proclaim before him as he rides on the stallion in the king's robe and the king's crown, let them say, this is the man that the king wants to honor. All the while thinking he's setting up his own honor. Verse 10, y'all with me? Then the king said to Haman, yes, great idea, make haste. Take the apparel and the horse and the crown like you have said and do these things to Mordecai the Jew. And all God's people said, amen. Verse number 11. So uh, Haman uh, then took the apparel and the horse and he 
put them on Mordecai and he put him up on the horse and he brought him through the street and he proclaimed the whole way, this is the man that the king wants to honor. Verse number 12, Mordecai came back into the king's gate. Remember, that's where it all happened. That's where the people were. That's where the court was assembled. That, that's where everybody saw what was happening. And now Mordecai comes riding in on the king's horse with the king's crown, with the king's robe, and he's honored in the gate. And Haman hangs his head and covers his face and goes home. Now we'll learn next week what finally happens to Haman, what his end is, but it's obvious that God is turning the tables. Why? Because when we do the right thing, no matter what happens in the short term, God is always watching to work his perfect will. Amen? He's humiliating Haman and he's exalting Mordecai. All right, so question. How's your integrity holding up? What is it or who is it that has paraded through your life like Haman before Mordecai and demanded or enticed you to bow to it? Maybe it's a thing. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's an attitude. But you have ceased making the decision to worship God alone and now this thing, this person has become your worship. Maybe you are on the cusp, you're on the edge of making a decision. You're about to step off. And it's a decision that will change your life forever. It might even change the lives of your children and your grandchildren. It's going to affect generations and you're about to make a decision, and here's my encouragement to you. Let that decision be driven by biblically informed integrity. Do what is right, simply because it's right, and trust God for the outcome. And when you do, then God, like he did for Mordecai, he will begin to bless and reward your integrity.